When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. This month we talk to the scientist who wants to get the newly found Beagle 2 lander working again and meet the musicians inspired by the space race. The first strides into the unknown were about to be made. That's the band Public Service Broadcasting. We'll get an exclusive first listen to some of their new album later and hear from their lead musician. We'll also find out more about a mission to Uranus. It's Uranus. Not when I was young. It wasn't. <laughs> it's going to be. This is, is this going to be a running joke? I'll try not to. I'll try not to. The butt of jokes, in fact. Oh. Uh, and our guests are Dr. Lee Fletcher from Oxford University and Dr. Sheila Kanani from the Royal Astronomical Society in London, which is where we are now, as it's hosting a conference today on a potential new British mission called Twinkle. Lee, is Twinkle one of these tortured acronyms? Or is it Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? No, thankfully not. Twinkle is all about looking at how starlight changes as planets move in front of a star and behind a star. So that's where this crazy name came from. But it's a lovely, small British mission that hopefully will do some really unique science. Great. Well, we'll hear more about that shortly. Eleven years later than planned, we finally get to say the Beagle has landed. What we can say today with some confidence is that Beagle 2 is no longer lost. And further, it seems we are not looking at a crash site. Head of the UK Space Agency, David Parker, at the press conference revealing that the British-built Beagle 2 lander successfully touched down on Mars on Christmas Day 2003. And all that phone interference you heard on that clip, that's almost the sound of all the live tweeting from, from that moment as he revealed that. As a science journalist, it was extraordinary to once again be at a Beagle 2 press conference so long after we thought that mission had been lost forever. Thanks to images from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, we now know the space probe certainly made it to the surface in one piece, but didn't fully deploy. Beagle 2 mission manager, Professor Mark Sims, told me it's strange coming back to the mission after all this time. It's a very great mix of emotions. It's elation that Beagle 2 seemed to have made it. It's frustrating that we got very, very close and didn't get the science. Even more frustrating, as somebody pointed out today, there might be science data on board that we can't actually get, and I'd never thought of that until today. And also great sadness, because Colin Pillinger inspired the Beagle 2 project, led it, made it happen, sadly passed away in 2014, and he will never know how close we actually got to the surface of Mars and getting that science he wanted. Colin was a great football fan, and as Judith Pillinger said in a statement, he would have thought we hit the crossbar, and he would have wanted to go back and get the goal. If he'd known back in 2004 how close we got, nothing would have stopped Colin from writing 
grant applications, looking for funding to go back and do a Beagle 3. Mark Sims from the University of Leicester. Well, he mentioned that although Beagle 2 never sent back a signal, it's quite possible it took pictures of the surface, started collecting data, and even played that specially recorded blur song that was carried on board. Well, Professor Ian Wright, who worked with Colin on the Beagle 2 mission, thinks it's perfectly feasible to go back and see what really happened. Over the years, I've been giving public talks, and when I mention Beagle, I've, I've always been saying, oh, I have this instrument, it's in pieces on the surface of Mars. I actually now know that that's not true. It's actually on the surface of Mars in fully working order, and it sounds like if one could just, just flip a solar panel open, the whole spacecraft could be brought back into action. So that is amazing. That really is fantastic. Does that make it even more frustrating, even though the narrative has changed, that this is now more or less a successful mission? Well, you see, I I suppose I seriously am thinking now that if there's a chance this spacecraft could be resurrected, and you say, well, how on earth is that going to happen? Well, what about if if a roving spacecraft was on the surface and could get near to Beagle 2, because we know where it is, and it could flip a panel out? Maybe we shouldn't say, well, it it was almost successful. Maybe it will be successful in the future. Now, that's something that I really hadn't thought about until recently. So, um, I don't know, frustrated. Yeah, I suppose I'm frustrated, but also um, almost encouraged. Maybe we're getting too optimistic about things, but uh, no, it's pretty good. Are you serious about the idea of sending something, a rover or something that could flip open those panels or even designating it as an area where humans might go to i think it's one of those things where you can imagine that if you take a long-term perspective which could be what 50 100 years i don't know something like this could happen if it's going to happen in my scientific lifetime i think that's probably extremely unlikely but it still gives you tremendous hope that um, that could be recovered in some way it's still an interesting um, spacecraft with with, uh, interesting ambitions and, and instruments on them still plenty of work to do there so what would you need some sort of series of small rovers that in in almost a similar size to beagle that could run along the surface flip open the panels have a look at it see what's up little repair droids well that's maybe a bit fanciful but um i I mean i think in this era of privateers getting into space exploration who knows what's uh, what's possible i suppose if you're going to go to all that trouble you might as well just take a whole new spacecraft but Let's say that uh, something like the ExoMars mission with its rover was on the surface and landed in the vicinity and could get up close and do something. It would be a fantastic way of practising these kind of robotic activities. I'd never thought about it before, but I'm starting to think about it today. It is an audacious idea, isn't it, to do that? To, to have, I mean, we've had the Hubble repair mission and look at the attention that grabbed and look at the success from that. Could this be the, the Mars equivalent? I suppose I spent too much of my career working alongside Colin and uh, it's rubbed off you know but this is exactly the kind of thing that he would be thinking about and uh, you know let's think about it let's 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 work out why it's not sensible or not doable um, before we knock it on the head and you're seriously going to do that think about it I'm seriously going to think about it (laughs) but there won't be a kickstarter project anytime soon why not (laughs) Um, we'll have to see Intriguing. Ian Wright from the Open University, best known now as Principal Investigator for the Ptolemy Instrument on board the Rosetta Mission's Philae Lander. Sheila, how realistic do you think a rescue mission for Beagle 2 would be? 
Well, like uh, Ian Wright said, I think if we could land ExoMars somewhere near there and it could just poodle along and open up that one solar panel, it's definitely something that we could do in terms of a robotic mission. And in the future, if we could get astronauts to land on Mars in the vicinity, maybe they could do that as well. I think it is feasible in the future and I think it's something that would provide a huge amount of public interest as well. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that Ian... In both cases, be it Rosetta, the, the Philae lander, and Beagle 2, it's been the solar panels and that power and getting the power to the mission that's been the mm. issue here, which is sort of something you take for granted, isn't it? You always worry about the launch. You worry about will the instruments work, and you forget, actually, the solar panels that we all take for granted on roofs around us, they're key to everything happening. But in, in the case of Mars as well, the idea of actually getting to the surface, of landing equipment in working order on the surface of Mars is a tremendous challenge. And it's something that all the great uh, NASA rovers over the years have had to contend with. So if you step back for a moment and you um, maybe ignore the fact that we'll ever actually hear from Beagle 2 again, we're still now members of a really exclusive club that have successfully got hardware onto the surface of Mars. Now, just because our power didn't allow us to then communicate back to Earth doesn't change that fact that entry, descent and ultimately landing all work. They're massive ticks in the UK favour for a very small amount of capital investment in the scheme. It changes the, the narrative really as well and the perception of British science because for the last 10 years I think space scientists here have had to cope with that plucky little failure reputation and now that just isn't so good really isn't it for space scientists like yourself Sheila? Yeah I think it's really really important sure the Beagle 2 mission was kind of bittersweet in the, in the fact that there might be data on Beagle 2 that we can't access at the moment but the fact that the UK are doing these things on a shoestring budget is absolutely incredible and it's so inspirational for the next generation. Do you think it's worth going back with Beagle 3 or other other astronomy missions in particular that you would like <laughs> to happen? I've always got a favourite, which is the, the Saturn system, in particular Enceladus, which is a little moon going around Saturn that's um, ice crust and then a, a salty water ocean. And I'd love to go there if I could, but Beagle 3 would be quite intriguing as well. And Lee, it shows that Beagle 2 wasn't such a crazy idea, even though the narrative, as Sue says at the time, was all oh, plucky Brits doing it for next to nothing. Well, I think it also shows that um, both national agencies and international agencies, people like NASA and ESA, should sometimes try and support the little guys with the great and clever ideas. Uh, all of these missions you see today coming up, they're all competed. Right? We have to write enormous proposals that get peer-reviewed and, and go through the system. So there's almost a queue of missions coming up. So something like a Beagle 3 would, would join that queue. But uh, I think every now and then there should be space within the UK, within ESA, within NASA, for those clever, small-scale ideas that just do something really cool. Absolutely. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find all of our podcasts on the Naked Scientists website and you can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter. Well, let me introduce you now to my current favourite band. The first strides into the unknown were about to be made.
This is the track Gagarin from Public Service Broadcasting's new album, The Race for Space. Now, the band has made a name for itself, mixing samples from propaganda and public information films with newly composed music. And in their live shows, they dress like corduroy-clad 1970s Open University professors. What, like Ian Wright? (laughs) I'm I'm not saying that. And project the films as well uh, on on a screen. Now, their their new album's uh, out later this month. It features some recently unearthed archive that's probably not been heard for more than 50 years. And I visited the home recording studio in London of their lead musician, Jay Wilgoose Esquire, who composes most of their music, and surrounded by massed synthesizers, computers, guitars and samplers. We talked about the album, archive, and the cultural inspiration of the space race. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. If you were going to condense human history into a key fact for an alien species who come and visit, you know, what, what, so what have these guys done then? You know, what's kind of their achievements? Surely one of the main things has got to be these people left their own planet, walked on another planet. That's incredible. This is Apollo Control at 102 hours into the flight of Apollo 11. We're very familiar with the pictures and the video of Neil Armstrong stepping off the lunar lander. But often I think the sounds of Apollo get neglected. But when you listen to some of the tracks on on your album, particularly the one I like is um, Go, it certainly sent a shiver down my spine hearing that uh, and hearing the sounds of, of the space race, not just seeing the pictures of the space race. OK, all flight controllers, go, now go for powered descent. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Econ, go. Surgeon, go. It's one of those things like radio having the best pictures you know i suppose there's, there's a certain amount of uh, imagination that hearing this music kind of calls upon we get a lot of questions because our live show is so sort of video heavy and we get a lot of questions and, and a lot of kind of presumptions about how the, the music is totally reliant on the video and doesn't work without it but I, I kind of think it's the other way around really and that the music does stand on its own because it relies on the listener's imagination and with Sputnik 2, you matched, and I'd never heard this done before, you matched the beeping of Sputnik with the beats from from your music. Did that work straight away? Was that something that was, that was obvious thing to do? I remember watching the, the sort of the source material. There's a, there's a film called First Soviet Earth Satellites, I think, which we got from the BFI. I remember hearing the pulse in that, and I don't think I took the idea straight away. I think I just thought, right, it's a pulse, it's obviously an electronic, there's going to be some sort of sense of menace in this music because from the American point of view, having a Soviet satellite pass overhead broadcasting these sounds is going to be incredibly threatening. That kind of informed how the music was taking shape in my head. And then I think it was it was on the very first day that I sat down to start putting it together. I had a very clear idea about how the song would start and pulsing the nature of it, an electronic nature. And then going through the samples, I think I just suddenly was like, oh yeah, well, I don't know, use that. And I, in, it's, it's quite a boring, like, burp, 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 burp rhythm, so I'll put a bit of delay on it to give it a bit more musicality, I suppose. You will now hear the voice of the Russian moon.
Now, you mentioned this this Soviet archive, and that that was quite a find. Did that make the difference? Because often it's very difficult to get hold of that that Russian, that Soviet stuff. The NASA stuff is everywhere. You can, I mean, anyone can download it from Library of Congress. In a way, I found it quite indicative of the nature of the governments and of the space programs of the two countries, because the USA, for all its its other faults, you know, is is tremendously open in some ways, and the space program was very open at the time. You know, they, they didn't try and hide their, their faults, I don't think, much as they celebrated their successes. And the Russian program is always shrouded in secrecy, and uh, still kind of is. If you try and find, I, I tried to find, you know, a sort of popular popular modern history sort of breakdown of the Soviet space age. It there doesn't, there's not very much. So it was always the worry when I was I was always hoping to set the two off against each other and kind of move from one to the other through a record, not necessarily chronologically. And I was like, where on earth am I going to get this Russian stuff from? And I phoned up the BFI and, and was just after some high-quality NASA footage. The person I deal with there, Sarah, was just like, no, we don't actually, but we do. Just We just inherited an ETV collection of Soviet space footage. We've got loads of the stuff if you're interested. I was sat on this very chair and I swear I nearly fell off it <laughs> Yeah, it was perfect, absolutely perfect. And from then I kind of knew this was going to be a goer. And now a new breakthrough in space conquests. It is tricky, though, when you listen to the archive, the, the Soviet stuff is all so positive. Listening to your track about Leonov's spacewalk, actually, I mean, he almost died on that spacewalk. Yeah. And yet, as you say, with NASA being much more open, you've got the Apollo 1 fire. There's nothing exists of all the, the Soviet catastrophes. Yeah, and in fact, one of my favourite lines on the album is towards the end of the track, EVA, which we did about Leonov's spacewalk, and it's uh, 10 minutes in space, 10 minutes that shook the world. And it's like, he wasn't out there. For, he was out there for nearly 20 minutes. He nearly died. I mean, it's just such a blatant distortion of, of reality and, and truth. 10 minutes in open space. 10 minutes that shook the world. Now, the last track on the album, uh, called Tomorrow, which when I saw the title track, I expected to be all optimistic and forward-looking. It's quite melancholy, with Gene Cernan, who we've had on the Space Boffins podcast, come in peace for all mankind, leaving the moon, all that stuff. Did you feel, when you, you waded through all this archive, that was kind of the end of an era, that was, that was the end of all this, this adventure? Yeah, I sort of feel quite sad hearing that, because, you know, we haven't been back since, and it's, it's a very long time. I do find it quite a melancholy thing that we that we haven't been back. The words that get me, I think he says, like, as we leave the moon for now, but hopefully not, you know, not for very long. And he's kind of like, oh, no. Yeah, we're not going back for a very long time, I think. It's very sad. This is our commemoration that will be here until someone like us, until some of you all out there who are the promise of the future, come back to read it again. That's tomorrow, the last track on Public Service Broadcasting's new album, The Race for Space, which is out on the 23rd of February. And I was talking to, I suppose you describe him as their lead musician, Jay Wilgoose Esquire. And uh, I I think it's a fantastic album. uh, And I think every space boffin should have a copy. (laughs) Although I would suggest that Jay Wilgoose Esquire is very much a space boffin. And the amount of effort and work... And research that he's put into that, I think, is incredible. Well, Sheila, you were you were sort of nodding along there, as, as were you, Lee. What did you think of that? 
I, I really like the idea of sort of matching the music to Sputnik's beeps and, and the different types of music that come from all the different parts of the, the footage from the space race. And Lee, it, w- it was interesting, wasn't it, hearing the, uh, the optimism of the, of the Soviet side of this. And you, you never hear the downside, do you? All the disasters that the Soviet Union had. I guess this is a way that the media works, isn't it? It puts a very nice, positive spin on it. And these, some of these things we've all heard before, but you, you know what? You really surprised me there. When somebody says to you, I'm going to play you something you won't have heard before, I'm sure you'll like it. That normally <laughs> fills me with an absolute sense of dread, but I, I really appreciated that. I know what I'm going to be doing later on this afternoon. Is well, apparently they're... they're They've got a couple of gigs coming up that Rich and I are going to Actually, a lot, to to. a lot of oh, gigs. Right, if you go gonna... to their website, there is a, there's a whole right. page all over the world. Well, we're going to try and go to them because, as, as he said in, in that piece there, it's visual as well as you're hearing the music, you're actually seeing the footage. And I think that sounds fantastic. I think the other thing, without wishing to lapse into music criticism here, uh, uh, the other thing they do very well is not use the obvious stuff. They use a bit of the, the eagle land. They don't the use one small step, yeah. for instance. And I think using the go for Apollo, I mean, you listen to that. Mm. That, is, that is amazing. Well, and that's the, what the I loved about the Orion world. launch yeah. as well, all that, you know, give all go, so and so go. That, that does give you a, a bit of a freeze on that. Anyway, buy the album. Maybe the Beagle 2 press conference should be put to music next. Well, I was actually inspired by that. I thought it's a bit copycat, but I was thinking, we need to redo our jingle. I'm going to do that now. And actually, you're right. We could do something with the Beagle 2, couldn't we? Do something with plucky Brits. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, distant reaches of the solar system are taking centre stage at the moment. Rosetta is about to make its closest approach to Comet 67P, and who knows, may even get a glimpse of its elusive fillet lander. Then there are the latest pictures of Pluto from NASA's New Horizons probe, and the Dawn satellite has sent back images of another dwarf planet, Ceres. It would be easy to forget that huge icy planet, Uranus. Because let's face it, everyone else seems to forget it. But Lee, you're part of a mission proposal to Uranus. Why do you want to go there? It's important to say, to start with, this isn't a new thing, Okay, There's been a huge community trying to get a mission out beyond Saturn for an extremely long time now. Um, Uranus and Neptune have only been visited once by the Voyager 2 spacecraft, and that's over a quarter of a century ago now, when this Voyager 2 spacecraft flew past at a fast rate of knots, snapped as many photographs as it could, but that was humankind's only real view of what was going on. These, These two worlds we like to think of as being the missing link in our solar system. They're sort of in between those big gas giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, and then the rocky terrestrial worlds um, in the inner solar system itself. So we think that's a product of how they formed. They formed in the distant outer reaches of our solar system at a time when they simply couldn't suck in as much hydrogen and helium gas as somewhere like Jupiter could. So they're a lot smaller than Jupiter and Saturn themselves. They're made of slightly different composition. There's more what we call heavy elements, but really we mean anything heavier than something like uh, hydrogen and helium. And that just leads to different chemistries, it leads to different colours of the planets, and it leads to slightly different dynamics when you look at these worlds. So, yeah, think of the ice giants as being the missing link in our solar system, and somewhere we've only seen once so far. And Uranus has also got a couple of unusual properties to it in terms of its tilt and the fact that, actually, Sheila, you probably know about this as well, the fact that it spins the opposite way to most other planets. So do all planets in the solar system spin one way and Uranus is the odd one out? 
Well, Uranus is quite interesting because we believe that it, when it was being formed, it got knocked by maybe some kind of a collision. And so it spins differently, and it's also on its side. So the equator is north to south, and the north and south poles are where the equator would be. So that changes the seasons, that changes which parts of the planet are heated and cooled. And it, it's just a really fascinating world, and it would be really interesting to know more about it. It's those extremes, actually, which make Uranus, rather than Neptune, uh, the, the place that we really want to go next. Neptune Neptune, if you like, is a typical ice giant, as we expect it to be. It's got powerful wind systems. It changes its appearance from a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Whereas somewhere like Uranus, with this really weird tilt that it seems to have as a result of its formation, um, is an extreme test of what we understand about how a planet works, about how chemistry works, about how dynamics works. Now, Uranus takes 84 years to go around the sun. That means that because of this weird orientation, one pole spends almost four decades in the darkness of winter, pointed away from the sun. And that's that, a that really puts places strange. like Iceland and northern Sweden into perspective. Well, it's doesn't almost it? like a British winter. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. And because of that, the, the atmosphere itself circulates in a very strange way to redistribute that energy. It moves from where the sun's heating it away to the night side, to the dark side of the planet. So it is an unusual setup. And we think that's a good reason that we want to send a mission there. You mentioned, you know, Voyager being the only spacecraft that's gone to Uranus before. So what are the challenges when you're at a planet that far out of getting a spacecraft there, bearing in mind power requirements, distance from the sun, etc.? Yeah, all all of the above, as as, as you rightly say. The the first challenge is the length of time a mission has to last for to get there. Because as you probably know, most missions we send into the outer solar system, they don't go straight there, New Horizons being one of the exceptions. Most of them do this complicated series of slingshots around the inner solar system first. We estimate to get to somewhere like Uranus from launch could take about 10 to 15 years or so. Now you've got to keep a mission team, an engineering team, a bunch of scientists all funded and happy and hopefully alive for that length of time uh, when you get um, to Uranus. Now the second challenge is power. Using solar panels out at that great distance is a big no-no. You need a football field-sized array of panels to be able to give you enough power to keep your instruments going. So what you need to use is radioactive decay of elements to provide electricity. Most of the time, things like Cassini, for example, in orbit around Saturn, use the decay of plutonium to give you that power. In Europe we don't have access to that technology. We can't get that plutonium. It's something that the Americans and the Russians do very well, but here in Europe, we don't quite have that technology yet. So our thinking, our plan, with uh, trying to get a mission launched to, to the um, Uranus system is to both study the science that we can do and how we'd want to do it, but also to develop the technology here within Europe to have radioactive power sources that we could then use for many additional missions to the outer solar system to give us the power that we need. Why not partner with the US or Russia? I mean, we're partnering with uh, ExoMars, for example, is, is a European-Russian partnership. Hard to believe in the current political circumstances, but that's, that, that's the way it's going. If we ever do get a mission to Uranus, it's going to be a big international mission where everybody does partner up. And in fact, this mission that we're proposing to the European Space Agency at the moment does rely on the involvement of the Americans to provide both the launch vehicle itself to get us there and the radioactive power sources. Now, politics being as it is, we couldn't simply buy the American power sources and whack them onto a European rocket because European spaceports, like the one that we have in French Guyana, simply isn't set up to be able to launch 
radioactive material into space. So we've got so many hurdles to overcome. But I should say these are Earth-based hurdles. The technology is available. We know we can do some really great world-leading science at the Uranus system. It's just a case of getting ourselves organised and getting funded to do it. So what stage are you at then? You're, you're looking for funding. You've obviously got a number of UK institutions that are all banded together and dedicated to this. Absolutely. So from a science perspective, we've had several meetings over the last two or three years now to try and come up with the, the top science questions we want to address and how we would do it with, with the payload. From the technology perspective, we've now had um, one proposal that went into the European Space Agency in 2010 called Uranus Pathfinder, and it was led by uh, Chris Average here in the UK, who's now up at the University of Lancaster. That failed, unfortunately. We got some great uh, acknowledgements from the European Space Agency. They, they thought it was an, a good idea, but not quite within our technological limits right now. So we've revised it, we've stripped it down to its bare bones, and we've come up with some cleverer ideas to do it, and that's been resubmitted to ESA in what's called the, the medium-class mission competition that's just closed back in January. So it's with a review panel at the moment. We've got our fingers and our toes and every other extremity crossed that um, ESA decides it's a good idea and formally studies the concept. That is that they throw all of their mission analysis teams, their costing analysis teams, straight at this uh, Uranus Pathfinder concept to put it on a very mature level. And if they like us, you never know, maybe we'll be selected as the next ESA mission, and maybe within a couple of decades we might have a mission heading out to Uranus. Excellent. That would be a great thought. And interestingly, you're, you're not actually here at the Royal Astronomical Society for Uranus as it happens, but for a meeting which is all about Twinkle, a British mission proposed, not about stars as its name does suggest, but exoplanets. Sheila, what do we need to learn from exoplanets that can't already be learnt at the moment through missions like Kepler? Well, I think the, the sort of main thing with the Twinkle mission is that it's another British mission, uh, a crowdfunded mission, a small budget one. And it's, again, showing how plucky Brits can, can get into space and, and do all the same stuff as, as NASA and ESA, but on a, on a budget and, and using public, um, public imagination. And, and it's, just, it's just another way of looking at it. So the science will be sort of, it's done before in a sense, but maybe not in this way and not by the, the British space agencies and, and scientists in the UK. Effectively, it just wants to send a spectrometer into, into space. So at first reading, I just thought, well, there are loads of spectrometers already on space telescopes. So what would make this one different? Well, this one's particularly going to look at distant stars and trying to, trying to analyse whether they're twinkling. And if you do see these sort of di dimming in, in the brightness of, of these stars, then that could indicate that there's an exoplanet there. And finding out about planets outside of our solar system is more and more important as we sort of increase our knowledge about what's outside of our solar system and we just need to learn exactly what is there and lee i mean when you talk about another you know small low-cost mission your proposal for european space agency to uranus it would be a fully costed european space agency supported mission where do you strike the balance between 
these sorts of missions? There's a lot of them around at the moment. These Kickstarter-funded well, missions, Lu- the, the Luna, Luna mission, exactly. Luna mission one did very well. Got all the money, six hundred thousand for its well, first for phase. the first stage. Phase, but yes. where do where do you strike the balance? What can you do on these sorts of projects? That's a good question. I think it's about having the um, the manpower and the technology local to a particular country to be able to do a certain task. Something like Uranus Pathfinder, we are completely aware that we need the assistance of all of Europe and also the Americans, possibly the Russians and Japanese as well. Okay, so it's a big mission. Whereas something like Twinkle, um, would we have the technology in-house here in Britain to be able to do that sort of thing. And it's important to say, um, we were talking about the science of Twinkle a little while ago, the Missions like Kepler, what they have done is they have detected planets moving across their parent stars. So as the planet moves in front of the star and then behind the star, it causes a tiny little dimming in the starlight. That's all very well and good, but all you know then are things like the mass and the orbital characteristics of that particular planet. And to my mind, someone who likes studying planets much closer to home, that's not enough to really know what that planet is like. So what Twinkle is aiming to do is actually measure spectra. It's aiming to measure how the light varies as a function of wavelength. And that's really important because that tells you about the composition of the atmosphere, the temperature of the atmosphere, what kind of clouds might be present there. And I think you move beyond scientific epoch where you're just discovering new planets to a time when you're actually characterising what those environments and those climates are like. I think that's really important because up until now, when you hear about, oh, Earth 2's been discovered or we found another Neptune, a lot of it is down to mathematical modelling of what we've, what we've measured and being able to actually confidently say there is hydrogen or whatever it might be in, in the atmosphere, then that puts a whole other spin on it. If it's so good, though, why not fund it properly through a space agency? I mean, we've seen what happens with a lot of these small projects that they kind of get most of the way there and then don't fully succeed or you know like beagle 2 there was no redundancy built into it it was really sort of fine cutting everything fine i completely agree with you if you want a job doing you do it well i think that's a that's a good message to give the problem is that all of the space agencies were all nationally funded okay and that means that resources are fundamentally limited there's no shortage of brilliant ideas to go out there and a mission like twinkle for example has actually grown out of several previous mission concepts which have been submitted to esa and nasa and although they've been evaluated and they've been thought about quite carefully they've not won the competition and other missions have slotted in that um, the space agencies think are more uh, are better to go first it's not necessarily they don't like the concept it's just there's a queue effectively that uh, one one mission must go first so yes twinkle is a way to sort of circumnavigate that that process do something sooner rather than later possibly on a lower budget but still get some science maybe not as robust or as redundant as the science we could do elsewhere but do something and i think that's what british scientists in particular are crying out for here, here. Well, that's it from Space Boffins. Do get in touch via Facebook and Twitter. Our thanks for the continued support from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and to Oxford University's Lee Fletcher and Sheila Kanani from the Royal Astronomical Society for joining us today. We're produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And next month, I'm heading to NASA for some close-up rocket action. And we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Gemini missions. Thanks very much for listening.